Chronicles. This fall, we are on a, um, we're in a sermon series on the book of Chronicles, and Chronicles is right up there with probably the most forgotten and overlooked and neglected books of all the Bible. As I've shared with a few people, you know, we're doing a sermon series on Chronicles. A lot of people have said to me, I've never heard a sermon series on Chronicles, and maybe a lot of you are like that. I shared with one of my pastor friends, and he said, who made you do that? I said, God made me do that. So talk to him. Um, the history of Chronicles as an overlooked book, it goes way back. I shared with you um, the first sermon in this series that the title for a long time that was plastered on the book of Chronicles was The Things Omitted. In other words, the book of leftovers, a book that no one's going to read. Thankfully, later on, it was rebranded, it was renamed and given a new name that was more true to what it is. It was called the Sacred or the Chronicle of Sacred History, the story of God's work in history. Chronicles is a fresh retelling of the story of Israel that was written to lead people into a renewal of faith. People who have disappointment in their lives. People, people who experience a very real sense of, of disenchantment with their lives, with their faith, even with God. And people who go through seasons of doubt. Chronicles is for those people. And its purpose is to bring about a revival of hope, a revival of mission in our lives. And that's my prayer for us as we read this book and study this book together, that we would experience this rediscovery of who we are and why we're here. So this morning, we're looking at chapter 21. We've read the first eight verses. You might want to, if you have your Bible with you, to open it up. We're going to be referencing the full story. You can look in your uh, Bibles there for you in the pews. I think it's on page 280-ish, and you can kind of flip to chapter 21 to find where we're at. This is a very unique chapter in Chronicles because it tells the story of a major failure, a major failure in the life of Israel's greatest model king, David. He's the most prominent character in Chronicles by a long shot. 21 of the 65 chapters are about David. And the only one um, next to him that can be compared is his son Solomon. Nine chapters are about Solomon. All the subsequent kings of Israel are compared to and measured against David. But there's something you'll notice. If you read David's story, it's already been told once in the Bible in the, book, the books of First and Second Samuel. You could think of that as the first edition of David's life. If you read that, and then you read this edition in Chronicles, you'll notice something, and that is that Chronicles leaves out most of of David's failures as a person and as a leader. His adultery, his murder, this whole mess that he had going on in his own family, you will not read of those things in the book of Chronicles. And at first you might think, well, that's some major revisionist history going on, trying to create a positive spin on David's life. But remember, the readers of, of Chronicles, they were very aware of these stories. They hadn't forgotten about these. They knew that these were a part of David's past and his story. And it wasn't a cover-up. 
On a side note, one of the marks of the Bible is that it is so brutally honest about the failures of its major characters. The heroes of the Bible, their flaws are not covered up, uh, but actually highlighted in many places. And Chronicles was written with a focus on the lessons from David's leadership for the people to follow, the people who originally read this book, for the people to look for when they were looking for leaders. And so the focus of Chronicles is on the highlights, yes. It's on the good stuff that we can learn about David. So by and large, 1 Chronicles chapter 10 all the way to 29 are largely a positive biography and telling of the story of the life of David. So a lot of famous people throughout history have had biographies written about them. And if you're really famous, you might get a number of biographies that keep coming out to tell the story of your life. If you're still alive, then you get either to write your autobiography or you get to have input in what people are saying when they write your biography. The number one bestseller right now, New York Times bestseller on the biography list, you may have guessed it or seen it, it's Hillary Clinton's uh, latest biography called What Happened? So she's, she's explaining her take on the story of what happened, especially with the events of the election. Uh, but I was, I was looking at this, and I realized in 2014, Hillary Clinton had already written her memoir. So that was version one of her biography, and now there is an updated version in 2017. You know, I haven't read it, but she gets to tell her side of the story while she's still alive. So she gets to shape the narrative of her life and her legacy. So when you're dead, you don't get to do that. And David's biographies were written after he had died, a long time after he died, especially Chronicles. And so you're left at the mercy of whoever is telling your story. If, you could, if we could just kind of picture David, if David was, had the ability to see these things being written, Samuel and Chronicles, you can kind of imagine his reaction to these things being written about his life. I think David, if you, if you know David, he probably would have really appreciated the, the honesty of version one in Samuel. David was a person of raw honesty. He was not a person who hid anything. He was just out there. And he would have said, maybe that's how my story should be told, with all the good, the bad, and the ugly, and how it showed God's grace and faithfulness in his life. But he probably, when it came to those places in the story that showed his failure, he probably would have, as any of us would, just cringe a little bit, like, oh, how many people are going to read this? For over how many hundreds of years? Okay. But if you could imagine, maybe an angel came to David and said, David, there's going to be a version two of your biography. And guess what? It's going to focus on all the highlights, all the good things in your life. And David's probably like, yes, this is good. But then he comes to see chapter 21. And he would say, wait a minute. I thought this was all about my victories, all about the good things, all about the positive aspects of my life and character. And at this point, I could hear, I can imagine God stepping in and saying, yes, David, this is one of the highlights. This is one of the best. It's one of David's greatest failures, as First Chronicles 21 tells us is actually at the same time highlighted as one of the most important lessons he's left behind for us about how God brings renewal 
to our lives. If I were to summarize it in one sentence, it would be this. Renewal comes to us when we are humbled in our successes and restored in our failures. Renewal comes to us when we are humbled in our successes and restored in our failures. We're going to look at this um, using three points. If you would like to follow along, the points are there in the outline. They are this, how we handle success, how we handle failure, and how God renews and redeems our failures. So first point, how we handle success. We are jumping ahead four chapters from what we read last week. We were looking at chapter 17. So we're going from 17 all the way to 21. It's important that we review what's in between, 18 through 20. In chapters 18 and 19 and 20, what we read there, you can look at that, but they recount for us success after success after success for David. The enemies that had plagued Israel for years, one by one they were falling and they were being driven back. The Philistines, chapter 18, the Ammonites, the Syrians, chapter 19. And even in chapter 20, we read that David and his army was defeating these giant warriors that seemed impossible to deal with. In 20 verse 8, it says, They all fell by the hand of David and his servants. And so we come to 21, and David seemed invincible. David is on the top of his game. And then we read verse 21, or chapter 21, verses 1 and 2. Then Satan stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. So David said to Joab and the commanders of the army, Go and number Israel from Beersheba to Dan. Bring me a report that I may know their number. A lot of questions we might have about these two verses. The big ones are probably, what is going on with this figure of Satan? Where did he come from? How does that all work? And then what was wrong with what David did in the first place? Why was this a big deal? It says later in verse 7 and 8, this was greatly displeasing to God. So first, let's tackle the first question, who is this mysterious figure, Satan? Well, some scholars point out that the word Satan, it can be translated adversary, could refer to a human opponent or a human army that came to fight against David and Israel, and that's possible. But I think our best uh, interpretation here is to see this as a reference to a spiritual being. In the Old Testament, the, the name Satan is only used three times. So there's mystery here. There's more information in the New Testament. It's hard for us to accept in our modern world, is there a spiritual being? Is there some kind of evil force out there that we can't see? The Bible affirms the existence of a spiritual realm. The Bible affirms the, the existence of this realm where both good and evil forces and beings are at work. And it doesn't answer all of our questions about this but it does say this, if we are seeking renewal, if we're seeking to orient our lives around God's priorities, then there will be an adversary, a non-human adversary that we have to deal with. And this is real. And I think the, the reason why these things are brought up are for awareness, primarily, not for preoccupation for us to figure out what's going on here and preoccupation with the spiritual forces in the world. We'll come back to that in a moment. But our other big question is probably, what was wrong with what David did? Why was it such a big deal? 
Well, if you look at the Bible, you realize that taking a census in and of itself was not sinful, and it wasn't wrong. In Numbers, God commanded a census. That's what the book is mainly about. And then in Chronicles, it's full of different kinds of sentences and lists. Why was God displeased? Why was he very displeased with what David did? I think if you look at verse 8 with me, you'll see a clue here from Joab's response. Joab says, May the Lord add to his people a hundred times as many as they are. I think Joab is giving David a reminder. These are his people, not yours, David. He knows how many they are. But in verse 2, David says, bring me a report so I may know their number. And what we see, maybe ever so subtly, is that David is beginning to see himself as having ownership over the people. But Joab says, these are your servants. Why would you number them? They want to follow you. They want to serve you. You don't have to exercise your authority over them in this way. So it's not David's action, taking a census that was sinful or wrong, but his motivation. Why would David take a census? Well, in this time, in this day and age, a census was taken so you could assess your power and your strength, especially your military strength. So David was looking to measure and prove. He was looking to measure and prove his success, his security, and his strength by numbering the people. His motive was pride. Here at his most successful, David is most vulnerable to pride, to self-reliance, to independence, to self-absorption. And that's our first lesson from this text. Our experience of renewal, a renewal of heart, a renewal of mission in our lives is directly related to how we handle success. Big success and small success. I think this is an especially uh, challenging and important message for us here in Orange County. Because in Orange County, we have many successful people. Many of you are very successful. You have succeeded in school each step of the way. You are very successful in your careers. Your life is characterized by the blessings of enjoying that success. And this is, the, this is the context. This is the community where we live. And so we, we need to hear this. That our times of success can be the most spiritually dangerous times in our lives. Satan, this character of Satan, is presented here as seeing his opportunity to move in and wreak havoc when David is at his most successful, when David was at the top. But David's success, his position, all these things were good gifts of God. These were things that God had given David and blessed him with. One of the hallmarks of Satan, one of the hallmarks of sin and evil is to turn God's good gifts into an occasion in our lives for pride. And so the lesson is, for us, that some of the most dangerous and potentially destructive moments in our lives are when we look at our success, when we look at our achievements and our accomplishments, and there's that little voice inside us that's saying, look what we've done. 
look what I've done. I'm not needy, dependent, weak. I am sufficient, independent, strong. We should all have a sense of of how we are tempted to take a census of our own lives. How do we measure ourselves, our success, our security? How do we measure ourselves? What do we count? Is it our accomplishments, our wealth? our appearance, our knowledge. And I'm ashamed to say this is, in the church world, pastors are not immune to this. The first question that pastors often ask each other is, how big is your church? A subtle message underneath. How successful are you? How do you measure yourself? There's a book by Jim Collins. You may know him. He's a leadership guru, business guru. He says in his book, How the Mighty Fall, The first stage in a company's decline is internal. He says it's hubris, born of success. Proverbs 16 says, pride comes before the fall. But isn't it true that it is often success that comes before pride? A few points of application for us. Our times of success can can cause two things to happen in our lives. They can cause us to forget God, and they can cause us to forget other people. The times when our lives are most full of God's good gifts and blessings are the times that we most often forget who gave these blessings to us. We read about this in our call to confession in Deuteronomy 8. And there are many ways that this can happen in our lives, but most often it happens very subtly, very slowly. And I call it subtle presumption. There's actually a passage in the law, in the Bible, on what to do when you conduct a census. So in the law, which David was given to follow as as the king, there was a passage, Exodus 30, uh, verses 11 through 16, of how you are supposed to conduct a census. And it was this, every person counted was supposed to give an offering to atone and pay ransom for their lives. In verse 16, Exodus 30, it says, Bring the people of Israel to remembrance before the Lord through an atonement, if you're going to take a census. And I think the point is, no matter how big, no matter how powerful the people got, they were to remember who they were, whose they were, where they came from, and their need for grace. And so they had to be ransomed or atoned for. And David, I don't know if he knew about this, I don't know if he overlooked it, but I would imagine he did know. And he probably thought, yeah, no one's ever heard. Who's heard of Exodus 30, 11 through 16? That doesn't apply to me, not to this situation. I don't need to follow the steps. I'm just going to do it. I'm above the rules. I'm going to cut corners. I'm going to make exceptions. And so for us, I think we need to ask, how might we be subtly pushing God out into the margins of our lives? Issues of integrity at the workplace, the relationships we have at work with our superiors, with those whom we oversee or manage. In our families, even in church ministry, in our private lives, how do we subtly excuse ourselves? We can forget God. We can also forget others. If you notice verse 3 again, God gave David a chance to see that pride was controlling him through Joab. 
Joab was one of David's most trusted advisors, one of his greatest friends. He was one of the reasons why David was so successful. He was his military leader. And, Dave, and Joab says to David, don't do this. This is wrong. This is not what got us here. But David didn't listen. Pride shuts out the voices of others, especially the voices of rebuke, of correction and caution in our lives. And we all need to have those voices in our lives, especially in times when we are successful. We need to invite the voices of trusted friends and tell them, you have permission to call me out on pride. Do that for me. So renewal comes as we are humbled in our successes and as we are restored in our failures. David didn't see the danger of success. He didn't see pride coming until it was too late, until it had become clear that he had failed and he was deeply humbled. Which brings us to the second point, how we handle our failure. If you look at 1 Chronicles 21, you'll see that it has 30 verses. It goes the story into the first verse of chapter 22. I just want to summarize what happened with David here. How did he get out of this situation? Well, God sent a prophet named Gad to David. After David had conducted the census and received the results, God sent Gad. And Gad said to David, what you have done is displeasing. You have three choices. Three years of famine, three years of defeat by enemies, or three days of the sword of the Lord and pestilence and plague in the land. And David responded to the prophet, I just put myself in the hands of the Lord. He is good. He didn't really choose. He just said, God, you choose. So in verse 14, we see God sent a pestilence or a plague, and many people died. It says 70,000 people died. That's hard for us to even wrap our minds around. But what happened after that is the angel of the Lord, it says, stopped at Jerusalem at a very specific place. Jerusalem was where David was living, and at this place called the threshing floor of Ornan, this person's place where he did his harvesting. And David and all his leaders went to this place. They put on sackcloth, and they confessed. He confessed his sin and, and failure, and he said, I gave the command for the census. Don't punish anybody else. I have sinned and done great evil. And so God sent the prophet Gad back and said, okay, I've heard your prayer. Verse 18, he says, I want you to build an altar on this site, the site where you're at the threshing floor of Arnon. And David goes to this man. He says, I want to buy this at full price. And he says to him, Arnon says, take it all. Take everything you need. You're the king. And David says, no, full price. It's not an offering if it costs me nothing. And so he paid him, and then he made a sacrifice here on this site, and it said, God sent a fire from heaven on the burnt offering, and the plague was done. Two lessons on how we handle failure from this story. First is don't minimize your failures. And second, don't miss what your failures can teach you. In verse 8, chapter 21, and in verse 17, David saw. David saw what he'd done. He says, I have sinned greatly. I have acted very foolishly. This is great evil. And he owns it. He felt the impact of his pride. He felt the impact of his sin. And the seriousness of it all, the gravity of David's action, 
in God's response to David's action is seen in how David's actions did not only affect him, but the whole nation of Israel was affected. We might object to this and say, what's going on here? Why would God act like this? David sinned. Why, is so, why are so many people affected by the sin of David? It's a hard question, but the Bible in many places highlights the corporate nature of sin, especially the sin of pride, especially the sin of pride in leaders, those who have any influence or leadership over people in their lives, in work, family, church, or in their community. The Bible says it's an illusion to say, I can do whatever I want as long as it doesn't harm anyone or hurt anyone else. The Bible's vision for humanity is that we are socially connected. We are communally related. And so our actions do affect other people. We're not responsible for the choices of other people, but I am responsible for how my choices impact other people. And this is tragic, the the impact David's sin had. We can't explain it fully. It's a horrible consequence. But we do see how God was weakening the very thing that David was taking pride in, his army. When David saw and felt the impact his actions had on others, he was humbled and he was broken. In verse 17, David says, Let me bear the consequences of my actions. Take my life, not anybody else's. And this is a glimpse of David at his best where he says, My life for theirs. I will die if they can live. The application for us is to consider the question, how do we handle our failures? Do we tend to minimize them or do we let their impact be felt in our own hearts and lives? Do we own them by seeing and feeling the impact that our sin and our failure has on other people? We don't defend ourselves, make excuses, or shift the blame. One one possible homework assignment as an response to this message, if you choose to accept this, would be this. I think it's one of the best things you can do. Find someone who is very close to you and ask, how does my pride or a failure that you're aware of in your life, a weakness that you have, how does this affect you? How does this impact you? And just listen without excuse, without defense. We don't minimize our failures, if we want to learn from them. The second part of how David shows us how to handle our failures in this story is don't miss what our failures can teach us. If we don't handle our failure rightly, we will miss our chance to let go of pride. God's greatest gift in our failures is the smashing of our pride. When our pride is smashed, Grace floods in. For this reason, our failures in our lives will be our greatest opportunities to see if we really believe the gospel. They are our greatest opportunities for renewal. Just to share personally for a moment, I think from my life, from my story, much of my life story could be characterized or told in this way. Avoid failure or the appearance of failure or the experience of failure at all costs. And maybe the single most or biggest roadblock in my own life 
that I sense to experience ongoing renewal in my heart in the gospel is my fear of failure. And maybe some of you can identify with that. In our failures, we get to see whether we live by religion or the gospel. Religion is all about my efforts to make myself acceptable, presentable, and approvable to God and others. And so sin and failure are the greatest threats to the religious life. Sin and failure are the things to be avoided with all of our energy. And so religious people will point the blame at others, will focus on the weaknesses and the sins of everybody out there, will wear masks and pretend that all things are well in order to present the appearance of not being a failure. Religious people cannot learn from failure. But sin and failure are not threats to the gospel. In fact, they are, no matter how great, they are our gateways into gospel renewal. One scholar says this about David. Perhaps the one thing that impresses more than David's sins in his life are his repentances. If we are sinners, and the Bible says we are, if we will fail, and the Bible says we will, When we get the gospel in those moments, then we can live for the most impressive repentances. The religious person does not want to tell a story of failure and repentance. But the gospel-filled person glories and delights in being able to impress the world with a story of repentance, of failure and redemption. This doesn't mean sin is not a big deal. It's not downplaying sin. On the contrary, it's calling sin and seeing it for what it is, which is a way bigger deal than we could ever handle, manage, or deal with on our own. How we handle success, how we handle failure, all this might cause us to ask a question, how can God redeem our failure while not excusing it? Which leads me to our last point of how God redeems our failure. The conclusion to this story is extremely significant. Just look at uh, chapter 21, verse 1. This is how it all ends. David said um, in 21.1, here shall be the house of the Lord, the house of the Lord God, and here the altar of burnt offering." For Israel. In other words, David is saying, This is it. I have found the place where the temple will be built. What's going on here? Well, what's going on is at the very center of the life of the nation of Israel, the very heartbeat of the entire nation. The most important place in the whole country is the temple, it's the center of renewal. And here we learn the backstory of the temple it was to be built on a place where great failure was covered, where great sin was redeemed. It was to be built on a place where the tables were turned on evil and Satan. People, like the original readers of this book, who are struggling with disappointment, people who wrestle with disenchantment with themselves, even with God, with doubt about their lives, people who feel stuck, who fail, 
and who wonder if there's hope will need to remember that God has a priority on redeeming failure. That though there is a price to redeeming failure, God's power is most seen in that He does redeem our specific failures in our lives. God's priority of redeeming failure, this was the temple, this was the center, as I said, of religious life in Israel. And what He was teaching His people is that understanding my presence and character, it's built on the understanding that redeeming failure is who I am. It's what I do. It's the very heart of God. The story, the temple, is only a glimpse of the priority God places on redeeming failures in our lives. We see this most clearly in the person of Jesus. In John 2, 21, and elsewhere, Jesus boldly announces that he came to be the center of renewal in Israel, that he came to be the center of spiritual renewal, replacing the temple for the whole world. He said, my body is now the temple. In me, the full presence of God is found. There is tension in the story of David here. Many lives were lost because of David's sin. He ended up paying a large amount of money, some gold for this, sacrificing an offering. David even offered his own life as a payment. But God said, I will accept the substitute, the gold you paid and the offering in place of your life. But was it enough? 70,000 people. Was that fair? God was showing David and showing us that there is a price for redeeming failure. And the price for redeeming our sin is, is life, is our life. But we have to pay for our mistakes. Every other approach to redemption says, and it's up to you to pay the price. This is about karma. The things that happen to you, you deserve. Those, those are your payments for what you have done. Every other approach to life says it's up to you to pay the price for your failure. But in Jesus, we see that God himself pays the price on our behalf. He takes the price on himself so we don't have to. At the cross, we see that what seemed like the world's greatest failure, turns out to be the source of the world's great redemption. And God loves to write this story into our lives. He loves to write in the lives of his people a story of the smashing of pride and the redemption of failure. You think of Abraham? Abraham's great failure was trust and faith. But Abraham is known as the father of the faithful. You think of Moses, his great failure was a failure of leadership. He said, I don't want to lead this people. I can't lead this people, no. And he went down as the one who would lead God's people out of Egypt. And David, his great sin was pride. And yet he goes down as the one who wrote the prayer book for the people of God. Praying prayers of confession and humility and repentance. Peter's great sin was denial. 
denying Jesus. And yet Peter is the one whose boldness and leadership founded the early church. The Apostle Paul's great failure was persecution, the killing and murdering of Christians, stamping out God's purpose in the gospel. And yet Paul is the leader of the mission to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. God loves to write a story in the lives of his people of a redemption of our failures. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, We know pride is something that we all struggle with, experience, fall into. And maybe we're just beginning to see and glimpse that the price is great, that the cost is great of our pride. But maybe we're here and we, we know where we're failing. We're carrying failure with us. We've carried it into this room. We carry it around wherever we go. We may be completely aware of these failures, or we may be just beginning to own up to them. Wherever we stand, Lord, I pray that you would sink the liberating, the powerful, the freeing truth deep into our souls, that you are a God who redeems our failure, that you are a God who would even pay the price so that our sin would be covered, removed from us. I pray now, even now, as we close, as we pray, as we sing, that you would meet us, that you would do a great renewing work in our hearts as we hold on to the hope that you are a God who redeems us even at our worst. You do your best work. Do it, Lord. Do it in our hearts, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.